the Mawale. For the win! Welcome in to this week's edition of All In. I'm Julia Moss, joined with Andy Rodriguez and James Burley, and we have a lot to talk about. It's no surprise that we're going to be spending the entirety of this episode talking about the United States women's national team. Before we get into most of it, I'm just going to, for those who haven't watched the game, I'll do a little bit of an overview. The game ended in regulation, 0-0, zero to zero, extra time, 0-0, zero zero, no goals scored. The U.S. women's national team would lose to Sweden on uh, penalty kicks, by a score of five to four. They went all the way to the sudden death round and in some twisted fate, some missed, some really unclutched moments by several U.S. women's national team players. Sweden does advance. And before we really get into all of it, James, we'll start with you. What were your initial thoughts after, you know, once the the referee decided that that goal had actually went in? I think the first thing I thought was, wow, this was the one performance where you didn't think they would let the other team off the hook and that's exactly what they did they were dominant that entire game even without Rose Lavelle who I thought was a crucial player for this U.S. team if they were to ever look dominant but you know it's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes that even when you have your day it's not your day and that penalties are always um, heartbreaking for one side it's never an easy way to end a game but you can't end in a draw in a cup tournament and I'm not the one to say that penalties or a coin flip absolutely not there's a skill and technique and mental pressure that you have to be able to deal with and that's all learned skilled and experienced but it's also individual and never representative of the entire team when it happens it's it's never the the right way to to end a match so for it to have gone down that way for it to have been millimeters from a ridiculous recovery save from Melissa Nair that would have sent them into another round you just hate that it had to be Kelly O'Hara too, you know? So a lot, a lot to have been excited about with that performance, but they couldn't score a goal and they left it up to penalties and a game is never won and lost in penalties. That game was lost when they didn't score a goal in the 90 minutes and then in the 120. So they left it up to penalties. They left it up to fate. And just from that game alone, you got to take the heartbreak with it. But you know, there were the warning signs for, years now leading into this moment that will now be remembered as perhaps the greatest failure in U.S. women's national team history. It definitely is the greatest failure just looking at like their history. So, I mean, who knows? His, the full history is not written yet, but up till now it is the worst moment for sure. And when I saw the result, I was watching the penalties and it was a mix of emotions because for once I was like, okay, I expected Sweden to win. But also, this was the one game the USA looked really good. Like, they looked like their old selves. So it was heartbreaking in that way. But then I get happy again because I'm like, 
oh, if they're out, does that mean Vlad goes out as well? <laughs> but then hours go by, he's not out yet. It's a constant mix of emotions. So I'm sure we're going to talk all about that. So yeah, I just, it's always fluctuating. It's really difficult for me, honestly, to try and, you know, verbalize how I feel because there were just so many emotions. I mean, just to put it in perspective, as I'm sure the both of you have and so many other people around the world, like I grew up watching this team, like Abby Wambach, Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, Carly Lloyd, like those were the players I, that made me fall in love with the sport. So for this era to kind of, you know, officially be over and for it to happen like this just feels so just opposite of what you feel like it should be, especially for a player like Megan Rapino, who has really just given everything she has to this team for years and years and years for her last kick in a soccer match for the U S women's national team to be a missed penalty kick of all things. I mean, she's a penalty kick specialist. She even said in a post-game interview, she doesn't know the last time she missed a penalty kick. And for something like this to happen at this stage, that was my first thought of like, this is just like sick and twisted. Like, and for it to happen in a game where they actually played really well and deserved to win, when in the other matches that they obviously didn't deserve to win, that's also really, really tough. You know, Sophia Smith missed the penalty kick. It's her first World Cup. She's still very, very new to this stage. So you can't get too upset. Obviously, you don't want her to miss a PK, but that inexperience really shows in those kind of moments. But the other two, like I said before, Megan Rapino and then Kelly O'Hara to be the others that missed penalty kicks. That's where I like, that's where it's like, it feels like it was just fate and to a certain extent for this team to lose because those players have been in those moments and have succeeded in those moments so many times before that the whole thing is just really, really unfortunate and just kind of heartbreaking for me personally because, you know, Megan Rapino officially has retired from the international level. Alex Morgan pr probably won't retire, but she's, if she makes it to this next, World Cup, she's going to be a Megan Rapinoe type player where she doesn't get a lot of minutes. I mean, I think she'll be like 37 or 38 by the time that that happens. She's not going to be an impact player. And then players like Kelly O'Hara, Julie Ertz handed out of retirement. This era is over. It is 100% done. And it's time for the United States to regroup and rebuild. And this is not something we've seen ever really in our lifetimes. Yeah. And you talk about the inexperience of the team that people had been referencing in the lead up to the tournament. And a lot of that <clears throat> ended up showing in the four matches that they played. And while I try not to read too much into penalties, yeah, perhaps the inexperience at the high level for someone like Sophia Smith maybe played a role. And you just got the sense though, what that when Megan Rapino subbed on late in that game, and I'm not trying to criticize her too much because people are doing that plenty probably more than she deserves at the moment. But given how poorly she had played in two other matches this tournament, you got the sense that when she was coming on late, it was primarily so she could take a penalty. But based on the vibes around this team, I immediately thought, wow, Megan Rapinoe is going to come on and she's going to miss a penalty, isn't she? And then she's going to get all the negative attention for months and months that she doesn't deserve at all. And that's where we are. And that's that aspect of it is unfortunate, but the fact of the matter is this team and this generation is at its end because they weren't prepared to transition well enough. Yeah. And while I tried to give Vlako Andonovsky credit for laying the groundwork for that, it was never a finished project going into 2023. And the, for that reason, it was so unpolished until the Sweden game when they actually looked like the best team in the world, perhaps, but they couldn't get it done in the final third. And like, yeah, we look at all the 
different pieces in the lineup that could have been used differently, the different tactics that maybe weren't approached. Sophia Smith not playing as a number nine, Alex Morgan being the only true number nine that was rostered. Uh, Naomi Gurma starting next to two midfielders in the back the entire 270 minutes of that World Cup. So uh, plus 360 minutes, sorry. So for me, that there's there's a lot that went wrong, but a lot of it is stuff that they could have prevented. And and while I'm all here for the conversation of the women's game growing in Europe, especially, which is 1000% true, that is a great thing that's happening. But there's no way that you're convincing me that the U.S. has fallen so far behind that they should go out in the round of 16. They're still the best team in the world. They still have the most talented roster. I think the coaching could have been better, but in there does not lie all the issues. There's 11 players on the field at all times, and they just couldn't get it done. This team lacked serious identity. And when you lack identity, the inexperienced players are going to seem more inexperienced. And the veteran leaders who aren't doing a good enough job leading this team are going to feel more like they're falling in between the shadows. And while I don't think that was the case for all the leading figures on this team, uh, that was the case for two or three too many. So this team, they just never fell. Things never fell into place like you expect them to. So for that, you have to look at preparation. And while I think that it hasn't been made official yet, I know Vlako Andonovsky was on a four-year contract with the U.S. Women's National Team. and That is scheduled to run out rather soon if that's what they're waiting for before they dismiss him. But he's gone. So this is a real good chance to now turn the page and officially commit to restructuring to a new generation. And that doesn't mean that you don't invite Alex Morgan to the World Cup in 2027 if she's going to play more of a passenger role perhaps that's a good thing that you uh, you usher into a new generation. And it's going to be up to that next manager to figure out who the core of players are going to be and how to involve the current generation players like Ertz and uh, Morgan, who are going to be making that next step. How do you involve them over the next four years and in a way that is not only beneficial to the program as as a whole, but beneficial in aiding this next generation that's really going to have to step up and reclaim a title because that puppy is very long gone from the U.S. Women's National Team. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. And, you know, I've seen a lot of rhetoric go around about the U.S. Women's National Team. All of a sudden, the whole world knows soccer, which has really uh, upset me in quite a few ways because, you know, there's a lot of what I feel like are ignorant, misinformed opinions. And then one of those is that Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan were called in to the to this World Cup for for capital reasons for for dollars and I just think people need to understand that there is something to be said for veteran leadership and experience in a locker room even if the purpose is not for them to play and not really for Alex Morgan really Kelly O'Hara Megan Rapinoe you know the names from 2019 that have aged and probably are past their prime to actually be playing in a World Cup it's very uh, unfortunate to hear people saying that, you know, they think it was just because people will tune into the, like, buy things from the World Cup if Megan Rapino and Alex Morgan, or not Alex Morgan, Kelly O'Hara are there, and that's just not the case. They have been there multiple times, and being in that locker room and being a, a steady force for the other players who had never been in the situation before, and as you mentioned, so many players have never played in a World Cup that was on this roster. Uh, that kind of experience and the 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 mentorship that those players can have for those younger players is you can't put a price on that and uh you've touched on something else and Andy I'll throw this one to you the substitute situation that's something that 
I have yet to wrap my head around Megan Rapino coming on totally fine with that. She is a penalty kick expert. And as she said, she, I don't know the last time, I don't know if she's ever missed a penalty kick in a game. She is 20, 2018 was the last time. See, and she is the PK taker for this team. So she has taken her fair share of penalty kicks. So for, for this substitute to happen, it makes sense for Megan Rapinoe to come on for that purpose, but to take Alex Morgan out might be, and I don't want to, over-exaggerate here, but it might be one of the poorest coaching decisions I've seen on the World Cup stage since its inaugural tournament. Because, I mean, you have to feel for Alex Morgan on a personal level as well, because she has given so much to this team, and for her to have to sit on the sideline and watch this happen and not be able to help her team, when she is our best, our, I guess, uh, historically speaking, the best forward that's been on this roster, it's it's mind-boggling and Andy I definitely want to hear your opinion on that substitution in particular yeah anyone that's spoken to me throughout this world cup knows that I was not a fan of the substitution situation in any of the games either there were no subs going on or when there was a sub it was just completely the wrong one and I was just scratching my head every time like why did this happen and I get it you bring in Rapino for the penalties but then you made two subs at the last minute for the penalties so if the purpose of that sub really was just for penalties, it could have waited, especially because Alex Morgan was starting to get in the groove when they took her out. She had that shot, the header, the 88th minute. Then they started extra time. She gets another shot off, and then they just take her out when she's popping off. It made no sense to me, especially because Morgan is also a good penalty taker. So to take out a good penalty taker to put another one in, you're still with the same amount of penalty takers on the field. So it doesn't really like make sense in that way. So I don't know. It was just very confusing. I understand the argument to put Rapino in for penalties. Her last missed penalty in 2018, her only missed penalty. And to add to that stat, it's not like she completely missed that one. It was saved. So to see her send it over the bar, it's literally never been seen before. So <laughs> completely unexpected. It felt like a canon event for USA to just lose here. Uh, especially with like Rusevich's performance, so much that went on. But yeah, the substitution was just very strange to me. I still don't get it and I'll never understand it. Yeah, I, I, I totally agreed with the Rapino sub coming too early if you're going to play for penalties because based on the flow of that match, why should they have been playing for penalties at all? They should have been playing to go get the winner because if you leave it to penalties, you're it's not a coin flip, but there's a very big chance that things don't go your way, especially if you lose the literal coin flip and you're shooting second, which has a 25% chance of winning versus a 75% chance of winning roughly thereabouts when you shoot first in penalty kicks. So for, for me to not see them make a better effort to go for the game when it was there, that's disappointing. And it speaks to this team lack of identity and attitude that while I was very critical of the way in which Carly Lloyd criticized them for it. There's something to be said about the culture of the team not being as ruthless for winning matches as it once was. So I think that there's a lot to, to say about not only just the substitutions and who was chosen to play where, but the timing and the, the, the attitude to which that changes and tactics were made is still was never good enough, even when there were implementations that affected the game in a positive way. Roosevelt coming on at halftime against the Netherlands did change the game and changed the scope of how the group play came out. But was it really all that impressive in the end? 
no, they didn't end up playing all that great. So I, I, I can't I can't look back at this and, and take much positives away other than, yeah, they outplayed Sweden in the round of 16, but couldn't get it done. And that's so disappointing. And I will say, like, watching the pregame, halftime, postgame shows and having to see Carly Lloyd over and over again be almost comically harsh on the U.S. women's <laughs> national team has been probably up there in my least favorite things along with the U.S. women's national team actually losing the World Cup. It's just, I, I just want to be in her head for a second because she is not far removed from this team, like playing on this team. She played in the Olympics and then she retired after the Olympics. For her to be, for her to question the the mindset and the just the integrity of this team when she played on this team with most of these players is so mind-boggling and just like I don't know her intention behind it I don't think she actually feels that way because there's no way she actually feels this way because she she knows the identity of this team and a lot of those players have been on the team for a good amount of time so I Carly Lloyd needs to chill out and that's pretty much my take on that but moving over you know I feel like I speak for a lot of people like you have a certain feeling when certain players go up to take a penalty kick. You're, you're either really stressed or you're like, okay, you know, she'll probably make it. There's a good baseline level of stress, but you know, when Andy Sullivan goes up to take the first PK, my heart was bumping out of its chest and then she drills it. But when Megan Rapino goes up to take a penalty kick, I'm as cool as you can be in that situation because she is the PK today penalty kick taker so that was definitely again just to emphasize how insane that was but moving over to another player that we haven't talked about and that is Emily Sonnet and this is noteworthy because she played out of position or not she played in a position she doesn't normally play in the Sweden match and she thrived to say the very least played defensive mid when she's been playing deep defender uh, all of the world cup or in the very few minutes that she got to play um, and the only time she's ever played this position in particular is with O.L. Reign. So, James, I'll start with you. What were your takeaways from her success in that position? Well, initially, when I saw her name on the team sheet, I thought, oh, great. So we put on another defender and Julie Ertz can play in the midfield and we can establish some control and stability, <laughs> much like we didn't have against the Netherlands, which was ultimately the adjustment that Emily Sonnet made playing in the middle and I'll give credit where credit's due. That was a end up being a great call from Vlatko. The game was very much controlled in the middle by the U.S., probably for the first time since the Vietnam games, which is saying a lot considering the personnel that we had in there probably should have been good enough to get it done. But to go with the double pivot of Andy Sullivan and Savannah DeMello, it opened up more space for Lindsey Horan, and it made things very much easier for the U.S. to not only establish some more control on possession of the ball, but to progress the ball from their own third into the middle third and into the attacking third, while Emily Sonda also provided some really good work covering ground defensively. I was very, very much impressed by the way that she played. And I think she really established herself as a part of this team where before the World Cup started, Julia, like you and I were saying that we didn't think she was going to be one of the 23 selected because she hasn't been playing, performing at the level that she had been used to with the national team for probably a couple of years, actually. So for her to come in and step in and, the biggest game of the year and do as well as she did was absolutely inspirational. And the players around her fed off of her energy. She's a fiery player and the midfield had kind of been missing that with the lack of Julie Ertz. So I was very much impressed to see Emily Sonnet be a standout player, not just be a player you plug in and expect to do the work, but she stood out. And, you know, you'd like to think that when a player like that, a fan favorite who comes in 
and and really stands out despite not getting you know their fair chances their fair share of matches earlier on that you know someone that it's enough inspiration for someone motivation perhaps to get a goal but we, we didn't quite get there uh for as good as emily son it was yeah and to highlight just like how crucial this change was first off this is probably the only tactical or coaching decision that i was like that was good <laughs> just highlighting how bad and how against i am vladko anyhow just to highlight how good emily son it was she was the most accurate passer for the U.S., 89% accuracy. She completed the third most amount of passes, only behind Naomi Gurma and Emily Fox. So immediately the impact is there. The change of formation, great. And you said it's probably like their most, their best game, even like with Vietnam, it's up to that standard. And if you look at the stats, it's surely backed up by that. Um, versus Vietnam, their pass accuracy was 80%, 370 passes. And now versus Sweden, if you only look at the 90 minutes, even without the extra time, 80% pass accuracy again, 389 passes, more passes. And then you look at their performances versus Netherlands and Portugal, that accuracy went down to the 60s, 68 and 63%. It was terrible. They had less possession as well. Those matches were just absolutely like just disgusting to watch, not pleasing at all. And so, yeah, it was a good change, but you have to question now, did it come too late? Because we were saying at FUVFC, we want to see some changes to this like roster, to the formation, the starting lineup. And if they had done that before, maybe they wouldn't be in a position where they're facing the Sweden in the round of 16. Who knows? We'll never know. But it's just stuff that, that's going through my head. And you really like hit a really good point there. Like This tournament wasn't lost necessarily against Sweden. I think it was lost in the two matches beforehand because they could have avoided this easily, easily could have avoided this situation playing Sweden round one of our round of 16 rather. And they, they dropped the ball when, when it really counted. It may have not have seemed like it was make do or die in that moment, but it turned out to be the exact thing that killed the United States in this, in this competition. But to bring it back to Emily Sana, I've gone back and forth between whether it was a good decision or not. I mean, obviously she played really well in that position, but would, have Julie, would Julie Ertz have played just as well, if not better, in that position with Emily Sonnet being back? I mean, Emily Sonnet really stepped up to that role, but was she put in the best position in that moment? Probably not, because I don't know if she was put in a position to succeed in that moment. She played really well, and she outperformed all of my expectations, but it's still like, man, like, why was Latko so set on having Julie Ertz play on the defensive side when she's literally a midfielder, literally moved Emily Sonnet out of defense, her natural position to avoid Julie Ertz playing the midfield. So that's something that I've been confused about. Really happy Emily Sonnet was able to step up because she's worked really hard for this moment. You know, she was on the 2019 team, didn't get a lot of playing time, really worked her butt off to get put in a position like this. And it sucks that she can't really be happy about that performance because it's in such a traumatic loss. Um, so that's definitely something that I'm going to have to think more about on like whether or not I'm like happy with it or not from just from an intense standpoint, but moving forward, I mean, Emily Sonnet, I think she played really well because she's coached by Laura Harvey, who is an incredible coach. And that brings me to my next question here. You know, Vlatko is definitely getting fired. I think 
that is pretty much understood. He's not going to be back for another major tournament, probably not going to be back for another game for the U.S. Women's National Team. So that begs the question. Someone's got to be in that position. Andy, I'll start with you. Who do you want to see as the next manager in this next phase of the United States Women's National Team? Well, obviously, the whole talk is with Harvey to be brought in. But uh, she already made a statement basically shutting down any rumors for now. And obviously, she's going to do that. She still has a job to do with her team. So it doesn't completely disregard that possibility. But let's just say for the sake of discussion that she's completely out. Another potential candidate I was looking at was uh, Lorna Donaldson for the Jamaica coach. And obviously, Jamaica is still in the World Cup. It's not going to happen right now. And if you're looking at Jamaica's success, their best World Cup appearance, like by far, you're going to say, well, there's no way you're going to let him go from that team. But then you look, but you dig a bit deeper, and he has experience actually with the youth coaching in, here in America. And he has experience working with Mallory Swanson and Sophia Smith. So who knows? That could be a connection that might entice him and be like, well, if that's the direction this team is going with these new players, he might be interested in that. So that would be interesting to see. But at the end of the day, I think anyone they bring in will be an upgrade. So <laughs> I just want to see that decision be made. I'm shocked that he hasn't been fired yet. I tweeted, like, if he's not gone in 24 hours, I'd be very confused. And I am confused because we've seen the decisions go super fast. Sevilla, for the men's team in, back in October, lost 4-1. Before he even made it to the locker room, they tell them, go and say goodbye to the fans, which is crazy. And that's the type of decision I needed to see for the U.S. women's team. And it's not happening. I'm just like, why is he not gone yet? That's my question. Okay. I'm not saying I want to see this manager take over, but it's a potentially realistic one that I think based on his recent track record, it could kind of check out and check some boxes that the U.S. Federation, who are notoriously not amazing at picking coaches, might be interested in and that person is phil neville who if you remember just two years ago was coaching the english women's team they won the she believes cup in 2019 um with him in charge against the champions of the world who the u.s who ended up winning the world cup that year and then he left in 2021 resigned early uh during the covid pandemic and then came to be the head coach permanently is a more stable position under David Beckham. So he wasn't necessarily fired, but he ended up resigning. They did have a uh, poor form upon his res resignation, but I don't believe they were going to fire him. So he has recent international experience with the English women's team as recent club experience with inner Miami until he got fired two weeks before they got messy and everything changed. They were terrible, but it kind of wasn't his fault. The team was kind of terrible. He could have done a better job there. And right now, most recently, he's been working as an assistant for the Canadian men's team, who, if you remember, is coached by John Herdman, who was pre previously with the Canadian women's team. So all the connections here point back to women's international play. And I do believe that part of the reason Phil Neville stayed in North America and stayed with international, he could have gone to virtually any club in North America to shadow. But I believe he's going to take an international job next, either as an assistant either on the men's or women's side. And I'm not saying he would be my choice because I don't think he's that great of a manager, but he would check off a lot of boxes for the U.S. Soccer Federation. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him become the next coach of the U.S. Women's National Team, especially because of his familiarity, not only with the women's, women's game previously, but with the game in North America, which is 
a massive, massive different thing from the game in Europe. So the fact that he has the ability to have experienced both is something that the U.S. Soccer Federation really, really values and has in previous coaches before. So I wouldn't be super shocked if he would become the next coach. Yeah, for me, I really do think this time around, I believe they're going to stay within the NWSL for the next coach. Um, and two two coaches I'm looking at, managers that I'm looking at, first, obviously, Laura Harvey. She's won wherever she's go- gone. She was second choice behind Blackdo to begin with following uh, Jill's departure. Um, she's won two NWSL franchise or two NWSL uh, coach of the years, which is or three rather, which has been, you know, obviously the NWSL is not that uh, has not been around for that long. So for her to have three of those titles is is really incredible. And then another dark horse candidate I'm kind of looking at, and this might be a little bit out there, but Casey Stoney, who is the current San Diego Wave manager, has had an incredible tenure so far. She's a little bit uh, newer when it comes to coaching experience because she played for so long for the England national team. But, you know, she coached the inaugural Manchester United team and saw a bit of success. But ever since taking over San Diego in the NWSL, you know, they went from being, you know, expansion teams are supposed to be bad and they nearly won the championship last year and are doing well again this season. So those are definitely two coaches that I'm personally looking at to be the next uh, manager for this United States women's national team. But to kind of wrap this up, uh, pretty much a general question, take this wherever you want. And Andy, we'll start with you. Where does the U.S. women's national team go from here? I think they need to start reevaluating a lot, not just like the senior team, but the issue I think goes down to the youth levels I don't think there's a lot of focus on that and obviously there's so many things that went wrong this world cup the coaching being the main one but the other factor is that the other teams are catching up and I know that's been said for years but this is probably the first world cup where you can see it England barely making it through earlier today or yesterday however you want to call that middle of the night and we have other bigs like surprises Canada not not making it through, Brazil not through, Germany not through. So the other teams are really stepping up. And, you know, if the U.S. is really the best team, like, all throughout for women's soccer, how are they not winning the under-17 or under-20 World Cups? That's my question. The last two finals for the under-20s were Japan-Spain. 2018, Japan won it 3-1. 2022, Spain won it 3-1. But to have those two teams because like in back-to-back finals and then now you see their teams are performing well in this world cup as well especially spain and japan they broke by a lot of players from those youth teams so i think it just goes deep down to the youth level there needs to be more focus on bringing the new generation and nurturing them however you want to call it to be better because yeah they're in a transition period and so they have to focus on the new generation the other players are not going to be there. We've already lost so many. Morgan's very, I really doubt she's going to be there in the next World Cup. She's going to be so old. So, yeah, there needs to be more focus on the youth side. That's my opinion. If they don't, it's going to be a long time before the USA wins a World Cup again, which could be a hot take, but that's what I see happening. I, I, I agree that it's very much a youth-oriented issue. When you look around the world, what has happened in the women's game is very similar to what happened in the U.S. following the men missing the World Cup in October of 2017. There was this massive understanding across the country that maybe the way that we do things isn't perhaps the best way to measure up to the rest of the world. And a lot of that conversation boiled down to 
having kids pay to play and having the best coaches be expensive, having there be a very, very large uh, college culture where instead of starting pro at 17 or 18, you start pro at 22 or 23. And that had been the case in men's soccer in this country for a very long time. But the with the production of the Development Academy in the mid-2000s, which uh, later dissolved during the pandemic, ran out of money, and is now uh, multiple different academy systems. There's USL Academy and MLS Next Pro. They re-implemented a structure of free MLS academies. Pro teams could then support kids who necessarily couldn't afford it to play at the highest level imaginable. And the U.S. system of soccer on both the men's and women's level has improved and gotten better. But what is happening in Europe in the women's game is a massive, more streamlined process of this because obviously it's way easier to get those things done because we have this very big pay-to-play uh, structure for youth soccer in this country. And because there's further along of a professional infrastructure in America for men's soccer, uh, then there's not going to be as many opportunities for young girls to get involved with academies and higher level training. A lot of teams in Europe are owned by men's teams. So they already have pre-existing infrastructure to create incredibly good academies very, very quickly for young girls to eventually graduate to and become the next uh, World Cup winning teams of the future. The women in America do not have those same opportunities yet. They are still very much going through college as the main path to pro. And because the rest of the world has not nearly caught up to some countries in Europe, for example, a lot of teams at this World Cup still use players from colleges, even some of the best teams in the world. Most teams uh, from some smaller countries had a majority of their players still playing in college. It's still a very, very useful and very practical method of going pro, even in the men's game. There's a, a number of examples of players who are playing uh, professionally, both for the U.S. and other countries who played in college. Uh, if I could point to a couple, Matt Turner, who is the backup keeper for Arsenal, played at Fairfield, uh, and he started for the U.S. at the World Cup in the men's game. So I'm not saying that we have to completely abandon college soccer. I love college soccer. It's one of my favorite things in the world. We're not abandoning it. Absolutely not. And we're not going to abandon the culture of American soccer at the youth level completely because that would be unrealistic. But what I'm saying is, if there isn't a concerted, uh, a connected effort to do what was done after 2017 for for the men to do what we now do for the women, because this failure is, is this just as big, if not as big as the men missing the World Cup in 2018. Given the talent disparities between these two programs, I think we can all agree on that. So if there isn't a similar reaction from U.S. soccer to this as there was to 2018, because these are both disasters, then I I think what we're going to see is a continued downslide from this U.S. women's team because if we do not address the problem at the grassroots level, this team is not going to get any better. And that's when we're really going to see teams in Europe surpass the U.S. in quality. So I think we've caught on to the problem rather early here because I still think we're the best team in the world talent wise. And we will perhaps could continue to be even if nothing changes for many years. But things got to change. And I believe that they will because people's eyes are starting to be opened. Even if some of those people aren't so sincere and aren't really soccer fans, and this is the only time they ever tune in to the U.S. women's national team is when they get a chance to make fun of Megan Rapino in a YouTube comment section, um, then, yeah, people are still going to take notice, and that creates change one way or another. So thanks for helping uh, for trolling. Yeah, 
you guys took like several points right out of my mouth. I think it is like a, a systemic thing from the bottom that will help this team in the future. And, you know, I agree with both of your points. One added thing, I think continued um, effort, attention and funding into the National Women's Soccer League will also help the, the U.S. Women's National Team. Because you look at this team, it was mainly players who had who were currently playing for the National Women's Soccer League. I don't know the exact number. And then you, you look at the league itself, it's mostly uh, American players. So uh, if you can keep stepping up, because I'm not going to say the NWSL isn't progressing. It, it is progressing at an incredible rate. If they can continue to keep that up and continue to get great advertisers or, or great endorsements to, to you know, further promote funding and better coaches and better refs and just – you know, when people look at the NWSL, they think that this is, you know, the best women's soccer league in the world. If they can get to that level, then I think that has a, a ripple effect, a snowball effect on the players that we see on the national team. Because, I mean, James, we talked about this before. Black, even said some people's NWSL performances have mattered quite a lot. So if those players playing really well have really good competition, the best competition, that's going to end up bringing better players into the uh the U.S. Women's National Team itself but man that was that was a very bittersweet conversation we've had I always love talking soccer but mostly under better circumstances but really appreciate you guys taking the time thank you everyone for listening all in is a production of WFUD Sports championship medal she is the greatest of all time you just can't say it enough wow